Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Death Valley, the hottest place on Earth and the driest and lowest place in North America, is a spectacularly beautiful 3.4 million acre national park. 91% of this park is an outdoor classroom, which has been designated as a wilderness and protected by Congress. Our guest in this edition of Radio Curious is Linda Slater, a National Park Ranger for the past 30 years and currently, in 2017, the Chief of Interpretation at Death Valley National Park. In this wildly beautiful and dangerously hot place is the lowest point in North America at 282 feet below sea level. Death Valley replete with rolling sand dunes, deep winding smooth marble canyons, spring-fed oases, and crusted barren salt flats averages two inches of rain per year. We visited with Linda Slater on March 15, 2017 in the Radio Curious mobile studio while parked next to a rock-strewn area in Death Valley, so white that it appeared to be covered in snow, yet the outside temperature was 100 degrees. Our conversation began with Linda Slater's description of that white material. Well, the white is a salt deposit that's so common in the, the valley floor of Death Valley. And uh, what we're looking at right now basically is the, the, the texture that you see looking out over the salt pan is caused by the expansion and contraction of the, the salt pan. After it rains and there's water over the entire dry lake bed, it kind of erases the salt pan and makes it smooth. And then as it begins to dry out, the, the crust breaks up and salt crystals begin to grow in the cracks of the crust. And in this area, it's been quite a long time since the water kind of erased it and made it smooth. And so there's quite a bit of crystal development in this area that causes this really interesting topography. Its greatest expression is down at the place that's known as the Devil's Golf Course. And that name is a bit of a joke because you know how a golf course is perfectly smooth and this is so rough. Well, what is the source of the salt being here? The salt has washed down from all the canyons that you see here. Um, Death Valley is, is amazing in that it's one of the driest places on the planet. And yet when you look around you, you see canyons everywhere. So all of the topography has been formed by water rushing down through these canyons. And any uh, salt deposits or any minerals that are up in the rocks get washed down into the dry lake beds when it rains. And then the water evaporates. And then the water evaporates and it leaves the minerals behind. So when you're saying the, the salt grows, can you describe what you mean by grow? Well, it's, you know, if you've ever done that experiment as a kid where you, you dissolve salt or sugar in water and then let it dry out, salt crystals form. And it's kind of the same thing here. There's so much salt now on the dry lake bed or after all the deposits that have been created here. And so even, uh, you know, rainwater falling from the sky even uh, will recover the lake bed with water and dissolve the salt into the water that makes the lake bed, the lake. And then when the lake 
evaporates, the salt crystals again fall out of solution and start to grow. Well, the rain here is rather sparse. Uh, from what I understand, it rains as much here in a year that it does in some parts of Florida in a day. Well, our average rainfall is two inches per year. So I've heard that it rains for like, I don't know, the rainfall in Florida can be like 13 inches, right? Or more. So yeah, our average annual rainfall is about two inches right now. Yet you describe that all of the canyons and the hills surrounding where we're sitting here, close to the lowest part of Death Valley, all the canyons were formed by water. That's right. And it is the most amazing thing to see because if you are here on a rainy day, it typically doesn't rain really hard over the entire park at one time, but there might be one place where it just pours down rain. And we we had like a half an inch in... 24 hours just in January this year. And actually, some of these canyons that you see right across the valley from us here, big rivers of water were flowing out of those canyons. And when you see the water, it's muddy and it's full of rock. And you can see that it's just carving and carving lower and lower, each one of those canyons. So what are the geological aspects that would cause it to rain in isolated areas of Death Valley as opposed to the entire region? Well, on the west side of the, the valley here, Death Valley is this huge elongated valley that runs north and south. And there's a big mountain range on either side. And of course, just like all the rest of California, our, most of our storms come from the west off of the Pacific Ocean. And there's actually several mountain ranges before we get to the Panamint Range that you see right here. And when the clouds hit the mountains, you know, the, the rain starts to fall over the mountains. It catches the rain. And the east side of every mountain form is a little bit of a rain shadow because all the rain falls on the mountain ranges. So by the time it gets over three mountain ranges and gets to the over the panamints that are really big here, um, basically most of the rain is gone. So uh, it tends to get pretty patchy out here. Let's talk about the heat. Why is it so hot here? being one of the hottest places, if not the hottest place in the United States? Well, um, I had a me visited with a meteorologist recently, and she explained to me that one of the biggest factors is the high pressure cells that form in this area over the summer months. You know, the valley is deep, the mountains are high on either side, so the air gets trapped in the valley here. And because you combine that with the fact that it's trapped by the, the mountains on either side with the fact that it's the lowest elevation in North America, which is 282 feet below sea level. That low elevation means the air pressure here is much higher. So it acts like a pressure cooker, like there's a lid on this valley and it just traps that air in. You know, when I lived at Mojave National Preserve in another part of the desert, it would get hot during the day, but it would cool off every night. Every night we could open our windows and it would be great. But here in Death Valley, it never cools off at night. That pressure keeps the hot air trapped down here. It just keeps circulating. You know, warm air rises, but instead of dissipating, it just gets cycled back into the valley floor. And it never cools off at night here in the summer. You can wake up in the middle of the night and it's 100, 110 degrees. On a day? When it's 115, 120 degrees. I mean, it's over 120 for many weeks of the year. Will you say that highs of 120 are not um, are not uncommon? They're not uncommon. We go for weeks at a time when it's over 120. And when the temperature, you know, the highest heat in the world was set at Death Valley, and that record was set in July of 1913, and the temperature was 134 degrees that day. 
but we haven't gotten over 130. We haven't gotten over 129 since then. So whenever people hear that the temperature might reach 129 or 130, they all come to Death Valley because they want to experience that hottest temperature. Well, that would bring us to um, the concept of death in the heat when visitors come here and it's that hot. It What's is. going on in the mind of the visitor from the perspective of Ranger Linda Slater? <laughs> Well, it is a bit of a problem, you know. It's it's pretty interesting that it seems like Europeans and especially Germans are just fascinated by the idea of the heat in the desert. Anyway, they come out and they want to experience these hot temperatures. And you know, in the summer we put up these great big red octagonal warning signs that at every trailhead to say stop do not hike here be off the trail by 10 o'clock because it's just too hot to hike out here. And that's 10 o'clock in the morning. 10 o'clock in the morning. Yep. In terms of the temperatures here in Death Valley and examining the concept of global warming, um, what might you anticipate based on your learning and your experience here? Well, I know that uh, we haven't beat that record temperature that was set back in 1913, but um, in the last decade or so, temperatures have reached 129 many more times in the last 10 years than they have in the, you know, they've been keeping weather records in Death Valley since the 30s and getting to 129. I think there was one temperature setting of 129 in the 80s and then a couple in the 90s. And now that we're in the 2000s and beyond, it happens regularly where we get up to 129. So um, it is warm here in Death Valley for sure. Um, but the place in the desert that I'm aware of that's being most impacted by climate change at the moment is actually Joshua Tree National Park. And you know, they're famous for their Joshua trees, but the climate is changing and their Joshua trees are being stressed because it's drier down there than it used to be and hotter down there than it used to be. When you talk to folks that study Joshua trees, they anticipate that the Joshua trees down there may end up going away. We have several groves of Joshua trees within Death Valley. And of course, the largest and densest Joshua tree woodland is in Mojave National Preserve. And um, they're likely to survive there much longer they, than they do in their namesake park because um, it's just drying out down there. It's further south and it's really dry. Um, Linda Slater, there are rocks here on a very flat place that appear to move. Yeah, well, that's in an area that's known as the racetrack. It's in a very remote part of the park. It's a several hours from the main visitor center at Furnace Creek to get there on a very rough road. And uh, it's basically a dry lake bed that's pretty smooth. And there are, uh, you know, boulders have fallen down over the years and are laying on the surface of the lake. And there's tracks behind the boulder. So you see a rock with a track. You can tell the boulder has been dragged across the surface of the dry lake bed. And really, it's been a complete mystery as to how that happened for decades and decades. And then finally, some scientists, the Norris boys, they went out there and camped out there and put instruments on the rocks and cameras on the rocks and finally figured out exactly how the rocks were moving. And so what they found out was after it rains and there's water laying on the lake bed in the winter, if it's a cold enough night and the, the surface of the lake freezes, it becomes a sheet of ice. And then in the morning, the sheet of ice breaks up into chunks of ice 
and um, the rocks are embedded in the chunks of ice and then a big wind comes and it catches the, the, the edge of the chunk of ice and it's like a big sail. It pushes the chunk of ice and it drags the rock that's embedded in the ice with it for a little bit of a distance. And because, you know, the prevailing wind comes from a certain direction, you can sometimes see rocks that have their tracks all lined up in the same direction. They'll have moved to the north for 20 or 30 yards and then the next wind blows them at an angle to it. So then they'll be to the east for a ways. So. It's pretty amazing. It's a neat thing to see. Let's talk about Badwater, the lowest point in North America. What is so peculiarly unusual about Badwater? Well, the fact that it's the lowest elevation definitely attracts a lot of visitors. The, the tourism industry developed here in Death Valley in the 30s. And it's one of the first places, actually, that was identified as a tourist attraction. So people have been going there for decades to see that, to see the lowest elevation. And if uh, you drive down there later on this afternoon, you'll see a, a beautiful salt flat that's pretty level. And when the rain comes, because it is the lowest elevation, it's the place where water is most likely to pool on this big salt pan that we're sitting on right now. So, you know, in January, when we had two or three rainstorms in a row, there was a little lake down there for four or five days. But it is the one place that people want to see most when they come to Death Valley. So now there's a huge parking lot there. There's a boardwalk that leads you out onto the salt pan. And also because so many people go out there, there's a path that's worn across it. The bumpiness is off to the sides and the place where people walk is pretty much smooth salt pan. And the water table is not too low below the salt pan. And if you dig, you can sometimes find a little bit of water there. How deep would one have to dig? One foot, two feet. And that would be um, salt water. It would be salt water. It would be very salty. If you taste it, it will be salty. Yet Death Valley has uh, access to uh, very, very potable water at Furnace Creek. Indeed. Yeah, there's a, a very good spring uh, right above Furnace Creek. And what's the difference? That's a spring and this is water collection? Yeah, well, there's a big underground aquifer basically in the Ash Meadows area, which is just to the east of here. You know, that's where the famous Devil's Hole pupfish live. I don't know if you've heard about them. It's one of the first species that was actually considered an endangered species. After the Endangered Species Act passed, that one was designated as an endangered species pretty early on. So that's where there's a big underground aquifer here, and the water kind of dribbles down into the spring system that's in several of these canyons. So there's one at Furnace Creek and one up at the north end at Mesquite Spring is another wonderful water source. And then where the Park Service housing area at Navarre Spring is a third really big water source. Talking about the pupfish, are you implying that they live in uh, freshwater or saltwater? Saltwater. They live in saltwater. And I want to ask you about what is unusual about Pupfish, but first I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Linda Slater, a national park ranger here in Death Valley. And Linda has been a park ranger for about 32 years. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Linda, tell us a little bit more about the pupfish. What do they represent from an uh, ecological perspective? Well, you know, back in the Pleistocene, there was a lot more water in the Death Valley area. This dry lake bed that you see now was a real lake that was full of water called Lake Manly. 
and there was a series every one of these valleys that surround death valley that you've driven through on your way here had a lake in it and they were all connected by a series of rivers it was quite a wet time back in the pleistocene and uh, of course there were fish in the river and then as the waters receded the fish were trapped in different small pools of water and so there's I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 different species of pupfish in each one of these isolated water systems around the desert. And each one is a different species because they've all been isolated from each other. You know, originally they were probably all one species, but once a group of fish are living in isolation from others, then they evolve into different species based on the environment that they're living in. Just like those Darwin finches down there in the Galapagos Islands where every island has its own finch. Every pool of water here has its own pupfish. How many pools are there? Um, across, not just in Death Valley, but across the desert, there's probably 20 different species of, of pupfish, give or take. Well, Linda Slater, let's talk about the super bloom. Last year was a super bloom. They happen uh, approximately every 10 years. Um, what is the rainfall uh, amount and when is it necessary to to fall from the sky to create a super bloom of the flowers? Well, it really does take some special conditions to create the so-called super bloom. I think last year was actually the first year that it was ever deemed a super bloom, even though, like you say, it does happen about once a decade. Um, it doesn't happen frequently because it takes very special conditions to cause so many flowers to bloom in this desert environment. And basically what it takes is to have a good wetting rainfall in the months of October, November, December, and January to create the ideal conditions for a super bloom. And last year what happened um, is we had intense rains in October, really intense rains that caused all kinds of damage and flooding. You know, Artist Drive is closed because of that. Still hasn't been completely repaired. Um, but uh, those intense rains in October, and then we had a few drier months, so we were kind of wondering if we would get a good bloom. But then the, the rains picked up again um, in December and January, and um, every one of the alluvial fans or the fans of debris that you see coming out of each canyon was covered with a flower called desert gold, which is a sunflower. So it was just beautiful yellow on every one of the alluvial fans. And Throughout the entire valley? Throughout the entire valley, but not all at the same time. The, the the bloom starts at the southern end of the park where the very lowest elevations are. That's where the warmest temperatures hit. So it starts down south at Ashford Mills. It started in January down there last year and slowly made its way on up um, past Badwater and into the area where we are now near Furnace Creek and continued on up uh, north another 30 miles or so. So it was quite a show, and it lasted for month after month, and many, many people came to see it. Was there not also uh, an array of other kinds of flowers? Yeah, there's there's hundreds of kinds of flowers here, and you know, the bulk of our visitors just want to see the fields of flowers. They just want to see, you know, that big yellow show. But then the botanists came out too, and they wanted to see like the turtlebacks and the facilias and the desert five spot and the mallows and all the other kinds of flowers that don't bloom every year. It takes a, a certain kind of year to get all those different variety of species here. So during the course of a super bloom, tell us about the seeds that are dropped in preparation for the next uh, <laughs> uh, anecdotal opportunity, if you will, for a huge amount of water. 
Yeah, well, when you look around you right now, um, you're, you're not seeing very many plants out there. Not Death, a one. Death Valley looks like it has absolutely no plants. And um, it really cannot support very many perennial plants, you know, shrubs and trees. It just takes more rain and more water to support those kinds of plants. But the one kind of plant that can do well in an environment like this is annual plants, plants that sprout when there's water, grow quickly, set seed, and, and toss off their seeds, and they're done all within a month or two. And so those are the kinds of plants that we typically have in the Mojave Desert and in Death Valley. So yeah, for instance, last year, Super Bloom, there's a seed source laying in the dirt. You can't see it right now, but if uh, you were to go out and really look around, you would start seeing all these different seeds. If you had a little magnifying glass, you could find them easier. And uh, scientists say there's hundreds of seeds per square meter uh, just out there in the desert waiting for the right conditions. And when the rain falls uh, early in the fall, it, it makes the seeds sprout. And then those little bursts of water that we get once a month make those seeds grow and flower and set seed. And then they dump their seed source and they're ready for the next super bloom. But they'll stay dormant for decades. I mean, you know, we say a super bloom happens once every 10 years. Well, it's not like there's a clock that goes off every 10 years. It's that the conditions have to be right. So it might be 10 years or 9 years or 12 years or 15 years. And those seeds will, will last for that many years until the next time the rains are right and the flowers bloom again. So returning to the geological formation of Death Valley, sitting here where we are now and looking out the window, we can see mountains that are pink and aqua blue, black, brown, dark tan, light tan, and some places almost white. Yeah, there's a lot of different minerals in the rocks here, and they react chemically um, with water in different ways. I mean, it's a really complex process. It's not an area that I'm an expert in. It is beautiful, however. <laughs> it, it certainly is. It certainly is. The people who originally lived here in Death Valley can you uh, share with us what you know about them? I, well, I can tell you a little bit about the Timbisha Shoshone. Those are the folks that were living here before 1849. Uh, that's the year when uh, Anglos first came into Death Valley, the gold seekers. Uh, they were over in the Salt Lake City area, and they wanted to head for the, the gold fields over there at Sutter's Mill. And the typical route is to go down almost all the way to Los Angeles and then circle around back up around the Sierra Nevada but they were looking for that shortcut. And they, they got some little map that brought them into Death Valley. And uh, it turned out that they actually got stuck here. And they were here in the winter in October. So it wasn't like it was the hottest part of the year, but they got down here into Death Valley and ran out of supplies. And the, the, each family, like they split up, they just couldn't all agree on how best to get out of here. So some of them went down to a well to the south. There's a place called burnt wagon point up here around salt creek it's the place where one family ended up camping and they they slaughtered all their oxen and dried the meat there and hunkered down there and the most amazing part of the story is no one died they sent help they sent the best the two best walkers over to los angeles or san pedro which was what the kind of the biggest town down there at the time to get fresh supplies and they brought supplies back and they, he rescued everybody but as they were heading out the Wingate Pass to the south here, when they got up to the top of the pass, they turned around. This is the story anyway. They turned around and said, goodbye, Death Valley. <laughs> and that's the, that's the genesis the, of the name. Right. 
But meanwhile, the Timbisha Shoshone were here all the time, and they, they spotted these folks. They talked to them a little bit. They actually utilized some of the food caches of the Shoshone to help them survive during that time while they were waiting for help. Well, Linda Slater, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask a little bit about you. And the first question is a eureka or aha moment that you experienced at some point in your life that changed your view of the world, your the direction that you ended up taking? Well, all right. Um, I guess I will go with uh, when I was in college. I went to college at Oregon State University in Corvallis, and I did this little solo backpacking trip up to Mount Jefferson. Not to the very top, but to a mountain nearby where I had this tremendous view of Mount Jefferson. And I realized while I was up there with that incredible view, and I was up there all alone, that I really wanted to work in a career that could allow me to be outdoors a lot because I just felt so at peace there and so comfortable there and like it was my place. And it, it pushed me in the direction of wanting to work as a park ranger. Did the uh, park rangers find you or you found them? <laughs> I guess I found the park rangers, absolutely. And you mentioned that you'll be retiring soon after 33 years uh, come in October. Yes. What would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? Well, I keep telling everybody I want to sleep for a month and then I want to read for a month and then I want to hike for a month. And then after that, uh, anything goes. Where would you hike? Well, I, I'll be living in the Sonoran Desert, so I'll get to explore that area. And since you would like to read for a year... A month. <laughs> uh, si since you would like to read for a month, um, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Well, if you're coming to Death Valley, um, my favorite guide to Death Valley was actually written by a ranger over at uh, Sequoia in Kings Canyon. His name is Bill Tweed. And the book he wrote about about Death Valley is called Death Valley and the Northern Mojave, a visitor's guide. And I think it has the best stories and the best information for touring around Death Valley. And the greater world beyond Death Valley? The greater world beyond Death Valley. A recommendation for a book? My favorite guide to desert biology is this desert's book by James A. McMahon. It's out of print, but it's still available on Amazon. And it actually talks about the four deserts in North America. And his descriptions of the ecology of the desert, I think, are spot on. They're succinct. They're to the point, but they really tell you a lot about desert ecology. And then the back of it's like a field guide to birds and snakes and lizards and flowers. And so it's an all-in-one book. Well, National Park Ranger Linda Slater, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. You're welcome. Linda Slater has been a National Park Ranger for the past 30 years, and in 2017, the Chief of Interpretation at Death Valley National Park. This 3.4 million acre spectacularly beautiful national park is the hottest place in the world and the driest and lowest place in North America, and well worth the effort to visit. The books that Linda Slater recommends are Death Valley and the Northern Mojave, A Visitor's Guide, by William C. Tweed and Lauren Davis. She also recommends A Comprehensive Field Guide to the Wildflowers, Birds, Reptiles, Insects, and other national wonders 
of North America's Deserts from Oregon to Mexico by James A. McMahon. This program was recorded in Death Valley National Park, California on March 15, 2017. There are now over 630 archive editions on Radio Curious. That's radiocurious.org. They're free for you to enjoy, download, and share as you wish. We appreciate your cards, letters, and ideas about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. Curious at Radio Curious, 280 North Oak, Ukiah, California, 95482, 707 462 6541. Angie Boyles Askham is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.